The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. So here's what we're doing. We started a series last week, Abraham, Father of the Faithful, and we are going to be studying the life of this great man of faith for the next many, many weeks. And normally what we do is we take a text of the Bible. This week it was scheduled to be Genesis 12, 10 through 20, and we just dive deep into that text. We are a Bible church. That's our middle name, right? And, and that's what we normally do. Today, we're going to use Genesis 12 as a launch pad, and we're going to launch backward to the garden and forward to the resurrection of Jesus. And the reason we're going to do that is because on this day where, where we're saddened, by the coming loss of our brother on earth. While his family grieves and while we grieve, the resurrection of Jesus Christ gives comfort and hope like literally nothing can. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to start in Genesis 12. Last week we began the life of Abraham. He was first called Abram exalted father, but his name would become Abraham, father of many nations. And that's because God, in the middle of this journey he was taking with his family, he's 75 at the time, his wife is 65, and she's barren. They have no children. And God speaks to Abram. And he says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make your name great. And I will Bless you. I'm going to make you a great nation. And he says, those who bless you, I will bless. And the one who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families or all the tribes or tongues or nations of the earth will be blessed. He tells him later, your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. As numerous as a sand on the seashore. God speaks to him. But like all of us do, Abram has a problem with trusting God. Martin Luther said the root of all sin is unbelief. And very quickly we see Abram forgets the Word of God. He goes out like God tells him to, and he goes to these places and he worships, but then a famine hits. When a famine hits, there's a, a place people go later in Genesis, about three generations later, God's People, Abram's family, they're going to go to this same place. And the place is Egypt. And the reason people went to Egypt when there was a famine is because Egypt has something called the Nile River. You may have heard of that. It's a massive river. And where there's water, there's going to be food. There's going to be grain. So Abram goes to take his family to Egypt. Not a bad thing. He's on this journey from God. But the problem is Abram forgets the promise of God. He chooses to not believe it. And so it says in verse 11, Abram comes up with this really, really wonderful idea. When he was about to enter Egypt, he, he said to Sarah, his wife, I know that you're a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will see this is his wife. They'll say this is his wife and then they will kill me, but they will let you live. So, this is a great idea. Say that you're my sister and it may go, well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. So what he's going to do is anybody might have thought about a sister in that time is we're going to go in, you tell him my sister, and I'll begin to negotiate a bride price. Maybe it'll be for camels or for cows or for whatever else. And we'll just buy our time, we'll get some food, and we'll get out of there. The problem is his wife Sarah was beautiful. I was thinking, if I said to, to my wife if we're on a journey, hey, tell these people 
you're my sister, not my wife, and that way they'll spare me. I wouldn't be the father of anybody. (laughs) That, That wouldn't have gone well. That's what he tries. The problem is Pharaoh's princes see that she's beautiful in appearance. So they tell Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, bring her into my house. She's going to be in my harem. She's going to be my wife. Well, Abram could have negotiated with anybody in Egypt, but you don't negotiate with a king. So here's what's happening. The king is bringing Sarah into his wife, and there's this tense moment in the story of God's people because God has promised a child through Sarah. And if she's Pharaoh's wife, not Abram's wife, that child's not coming. That child's not coming. This story and this promise, God delivers them, by the way, and the reason he delivers them is that this story is rooted in a deeper story. It's rooted in a deeper story. Now, here's what this would have looked like. Abram, Sarah, they go into Pharaoh's house. And we, from history, what we know about the kings of Egypt is they dress this way. And here's the thing. You look at Pharaoh's headdress, and it looks kind of like a cobra. But then you look in the middle of the headdress, and it's all the more explicit. There is a serpent. Now, if you're new to Christianity, you might go, okay, this guy with an odd-looking crown going to kill Abram's wife. But if you're not new to Christianity, what you might realize is that the serpent king is going to come against the woman and threaten to cut off the offspring. That's a real familiar story. See, in Genesis chapter 1, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was void and full of darkness, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And that's what God does. God speaks light into darkness. He continues to speak light into the brokenness of our own sin and the brokenness of our culture. And then God begins to create everything that was made and it is good and it's beautiful. And then He creates man and woman, male and female, in His image. And He tells them to be fruitful and multiply. And the reason He tells them to be fruitful and multiply is His so that they will fill the earth, so that the image and the beauty and the glory and the love of God will spread over all the earth. And they're in a garden that is this amazing garden, and they can have anything they want from any of the plants or any of the trees in this garden. There's no brokenness there. Everything tastes good. You see an onion plant, you pick it up, you bite into that onion, and it tastes like mint chocolate chip ice cream. That's what onions were like before the fall. But there's one tree God tells the man and the woman not to eat of in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he says, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. You don't trust me. You disobey me. Death is going to come. And so in Genesis 3, in Genesis 3, we see the story pick up and it says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Remember that word, crafty. He is a deceiver. And he said to the woman, did God actually say to you, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden or the middle of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You'll be like God if you 
eat of this tree. And the man and the woman believe the whisper of the crafty serpent and they eat. And they've been in this garden and it says that they were in the garden naked and not ashamed. Which is really strange for us because the world is broken. We don't understand what that's like, but here's what happens. All of a sudden, they're ashamed. They hide themselves. They make coverings for themselves and they try to hide from God, but you can't hide from God because He is the God who sees. And so He's going to come and because of their sin, because of their unbelief, He's going to give a curse to the man and a curse to the woman, but first he gives a curse to the serpent. And in that curse, there is a promise, the proto-evangelion, that an offspring is going to come. Let me ruin the ending for you. Jesus is going to raise from the dead. That's good news today. Here's what he says to the serpent. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. There's an offspring coming from the mother of all human beings, Eve. And this offspring is going to crush the head of the serpent. And the serpent will bruise his heal. And so we see this story of the serpent trying to stop the offspring from coming. We see it again in Exodus 1. About 450-500 years later from this encounter Abram has when Moses is born. And the Pharaoh sees the numerous amount of Israeli slaves, these Hebrew people, and he says, kill all the firstborn males, but this one baby is saved in a basket. His name is Moses, and he is the deliverer God is going to bring. And 80 years later, when Moses rises up as a deliverer, Pharaoh won't let God's people go and worship, and God brings plagues on Egypt. And Moses is one of many of these Descendants of Abraham. They're beautiful, wonderful, amazing stories of faith. But the truth is, with all these people, they're still broken. This Moses, the great deliverer, who's going to lead God's people into the promised land, he doesn't actually get to go because he doesn't trust God. He disobeys. And leader after leader, though they're people of faith, they're also people who fail. And it becomes very apparent that Israel needs a Messiah. The world needs a Savior. Even King David, this great King David that we're told is a man after God's own heart. Even if you don't know much about the Bible, you know David, he's the giant killer. But see, the giant killer became a king, and when he was king, he didn't do what kings were supposed to be doing. And he tried to be a lady killer and pursued Bathsheba, another man's wife. Forced her into his home, he slept with her, and had her husband killed. See, even the best of us, we need a Savior. We need a Savior. No matter where you go in the world, we have a sin problem. So then Israel goes into exile because of their sins, and then there's silence, and then God sends the Messiah. And John 1 describes when He came like this, He says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and Everything that was made was made by Him. Nothing has been made that was not made by Him. This Word is Jesus, 
before he came incarnate. In him was life, and that life was the light of men, and that light shined in darkness, and the darkness could not overcome it. And the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, and He was full of grace and truth. Jesus is the answer to God's promise to Abraham. We're told as we looked last week in Galatians, it's those who are faith are the sons of Abraham who see this promise accomplished. The Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So it's those who are of faith who trust in this risen Christ, who are the sons of Abraham. Galatians goes on to say, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So Jesus took the curse that was ours. He bore our sin, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. See, Jesus is the answer to the promise of Abraham. But not everybody believes that. In fact, there were some Jewish leaders who didn't believe that, and they were having an argument with Jesus. Because he said to them, if you abide in my word and my word abides in you, then you're truly my disciples and the truth will set you free. And they said, we have Abraham as our father. We're not enslaved to anyone. And he said, anyone who sins is a slave to sin. And they were so offended that he would call them sinners. And the argument continues. And Jesus then says, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. See, he is claiming to be God. And they say, are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. What do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus says, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced. Abraham rejoiced, Jesus says, that he would see my day. I am the one Abraham was looking forward to when he walked in faith. He rejoiced that he would see my day and he saw it. The gospel was preached to him, Galatians says beforehand. Abraham looked ahead and he saw it and he was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? They're not understanding. And so Jesus makes it all the more clear. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, if you're not familiar with the story of Christianity, it might just sound like Jesus used past tense for Abraham and present tense for him, and that's not a big deal. See, when Moses, this great deliverer that raised, God raised up, to free his people from Egypt, he asked God, God, who do I tell them sent me? And God says, you tell them I am sent me. And so when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, they pick up stones to stone him. They believe because he is making this claim that he's equal with God. 
They're going to stone him because they don't believe him. They think he's a liar or a madman. And here's the question, what are you going to do with Jesus? Because see, for us, church, and these moments of sadness where our brother is at the end of a battle with cancer, we find out how strong our hope is and whether or not we believe, we really believe Jesus rose from the dead. If you're not a believer, you might go, well, I don't know. Maybe, I mean, maybe he's just a good guy, a good teacher. But here's the problem. There is no neutrality with Jesus. That's like going, I don't know. I like East Texas back stand, Mary Harden Baylor. You can't do that. There is no neutrality with Jesus, and here's why. Here's why a good man doesn't say he's God when he's not. He just doesn't. So there are three options when it comes to what to do with Jesus. And one of them is not neutrality. The first is that you can say he's crafty, just like the serpent. He's just a liar, just a good deceiver. This man who, when he was being nailed to a cross for the sins of others, looked out and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Maybe this guy who said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Forgive as you've been forgiven. Maybe this man of whom people said no one ever spoke like this man. Maybe he was just really, really crafty. Maybe when he was 12 years old, and he was in the temple, his parents couldn't find him, and they came, and this 12-year-old boy is teaching Israel's leaders, and they are amazed at his wisdom. Maybe he was just crafty and a good deceiver. Maybe he was crafty, or maybe he was crazy. Maybe he was crazy. Maybe he genuinely believed that he was God, but he was wrong. I've met some people. In some real rough places, they thought they were God. And they're not. Maybe Jesus was crazy. This man who said the whole law depends on this. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the second greatest commandment. It's like the first one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, and your soul, and your strength. Maybe this guy who said treat others the way you want to be treated. Maybe this man, when he was looking out at people, most of whom were really poor, would wonder, how are we going to eat today? How are we going to have clothes? He looked at him and he said, look at the birds of the air. They don't store up in barns, but your father feeds them. Look at the flowers of the field. They're dressed more beautiful than King Solomon in all of his glory. But they don't toil or spin. Your God knows what you need before you ask, and you're more valuable than they are. So don't worry. Seek after his kingdom. Maybe this man was just crazy. But if he wasn't crafty, and he wasn't crazy, then there's only one other option, and that's that Jesus is king. That's that Jesus is king. And that's what this scripture says of him. Philippians 2 says that although he existed in the form of God, he was with the Father, with the Spirit from all eternity. When he came to earth, he didn't regard equality with God as something to be grasped, 
But he made himself nothing. He emptied himself and he took on the form of a servant and he became obedient even to death on a cross. And therefore, God exalted him and gave him the name above every name that at the name Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And at the name Jesus, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ, the risen King, He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What are you going to do? What are we going to do with this Jesus? You can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And Paul tells us what to do with this Jesus. See, this is the most important thing about the Christian faith. That's what Paul tells the church in Corinth. Verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 15, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That's of first importance. We believe that Jesus died. And when he died, he died for our sins. He was taking the punishment for your sins and for my sins upon himself so that we might be forgiven, that we might be the children of God, that we might know hope and forgiveness and everlasting love from God our Father, that we might actually have eternal life. And he was buried and then he rose from the dead. And then listen to this, a lot of people saw him. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. They had died. Then He appeared to James, then to all of the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared to me. And see, here's what people do with this. They take this testimony and they go, well, yeah, that's what you Christians believe. A friend of mine experienced that a few years ago. He was talking with a Jewish colleague, and it was near Easter, and he began to talk to her about the celebration of Passover, and she said, it's really amazing that you know so much about the Passover. And he said, well, the Passover really matters to to us as well, because this is when we recognize that Jesus died for our sins, and we celebrate his resurrection three days later. And she goes, well, I mean, that's what you guys think. And he's just a bright guy. And he said, can I ask ask you a question? He said, how how does it make you feel? And what what do you think about Holocaust deniers? See, there are people out there uh, that we'd put in the category of flat earthers, maybe, that they deny that Adolf Hitler and his regime killed six million Jews in the 1930s and the 1940s. What does it make you think when people deny the Holocaust? And and this friend of his began to get tears in her eyes and she looked at him and she said, "My, my parents, my parents survived the Holocaust. That hurts so bad when people say that. And he said, then you can, you can imagine what it's like for us as Christians when people hear this eyewitness testimony written just years after Jesus died, and they say, oh, that's just what you, you think. See, Jesus was raised from the dead. And if He wasn't, we're all without hope. 
See, Paul says in verse 13, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. What we're doing right now, if Jesus Christ didn't raise from the dead, is an utter waste of time. Any comfort that we would have or Gary's family would have in this moment is unfounded if Jesus didn't raise from the dead. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. What that means is that I'm a liar and a false witness about God, that my life is staked on a false claim and is a complete and utter waste. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. See, everybody in the world knows we got a sin problem. None of us would want the ugliness of our heart up on this screen for the world to see, and God is the God who sees. And if Christ is not raised, He says, you're still in your sins Stated as we would in Deweyville, Texas, if it ain't Jesus, it ain't anybody. He is our only hope. Paul goes on. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, those who have died in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. You will hear people say sometimes, listen, even if Jesus didn't raise from the dead as a Christian, I'm living a good life. This way is better. And Paul says, no. No, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, friends, our, our grief is without hope. But, in fact, Christ has been risen from the dead. Verse 20, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, for as by a man, Adam, came death. By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all died, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Jesus is risen from the dead. Verse 42, So it is with the resurrection. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. And in verse 53, For the perishable body must put on the imperishable And this mortal body must put on immortality. So what that means for our dear friend is that a body right now that is weak and frail and has cancer and bones and lungs and liver, that body's about to be put off. And a body will be put on. That cancer will never curse again and neither will sin or struggle or pain, or any other thing. Amen. For when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? And death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. See, when that man and that woman ate that fruit, death entered the world through sin. And the power of sin is the law. We are all law breakers. We break God's law. 
but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God who gives us this victory. Now, if my brother Gary were here with us today, what he would have asked us if he were in our staff meeting on Wednesday is he would say, how are you going to apply this? How are you going to apply it? So I'm going to tell you how we apply this today. What does this mean for Gary? It means that Gary is about to be cancer-free forever. As he was talking to us Tuesday, he was talking to us about some friends that he's looking forward to seeing. And then he said, but can you guys imagine, I'm going to get to see the face of Jesus. Can you imagine what that's going to be like? And we had some tears and some smiles together. And, and, and then we were reminded along the way that he will be the guy in the back with the LSU t-shirt on. <laughs> well, what does this mean for Bev and for Sarah and Daniel and Frank, their family? It means that in this deep, deep, deep grief. It means that there's hope. It's like an anchor in the middle of the worst storm you could imagine that holds him steady. There's comfort. There's encouragement in Christ. As if it ain't Jesus, it ain't anybody, but it is Jesus. He is the King. What does it mean for us, church, Paul tells us what it means in verse 58. Therefore, because Jesus is risen from the dead, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. You want to know what that looks like? We've seen it for 38 years. And so now we carry on this work together. Steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Because in this community, when it's time for Gary to go be with the king, people are going to talk and people are going to ask questions. And we've got work to do to tell them about the grief that we have, but also the comfort and the hope we have because Jesus rose from the dead. Knowing that in the Lord our labor is not in vain. Last, last question is this. Last question is this. What are you going to do? What are you going to do with Jesus? Because for some of you, you're in this room and you're in this moment and you don't know Jesus is King. I want to ask Mark to come up for just a moment for us to take some time to pray. Some of you, you would love to be neutral with Jesus and you just can't because you've heard the truth from God's Word today. You'd love to think... Maybe he was just a good guy, but good guys don't lie and make themselves out to be God. Maybe he was just a prophet. Well, no, he'd be a false prophet claiming to be God. So he is either crafty or he's either crazy or he's king. So what I'd like you to do with me now as we close our time is I would just ask you to bow your heads. And as you bow your heads... Church, I'd ask you just to begin to pray. How would you have me be steadfast and immovable and abounding in the work of the Lord, Jesus, as I move forward, even in my grief? How would you do that? And as you begin to pray, others of you, you need to trust Jesus as King today. And so maybe as Christians pray around you, maybe you would say, I want to make Jesus my King. I don't want to be neutral anymore. I want to put my 
life and my heart in His hands. And I want to lead you, if that's you today, just to pray. You can just pray after me. Jesus, I want you to forgive my sins. I want to trust you as my Lord and my King. Jesus, I want to give my life to you today. be forgiven and I want eternal life I want your resurrection to matter personally in my life with people praying for you right now if that's you I just want to ask you to stand where you are so that we can pray for you today you're saying right now I want to make Jesus my savior I want to make Jesus my king just right where you are I'm just going to ask you to stand so we can pray for you crafty or he's crazy or he is king but is he your king don't be afraid Jesus' name, who is the risen King and Lord over everything, the one who for us conquered death. And God, we pray in Jesus' name that you would make us steadfast and immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord. God, I pray for those today that are wrestling with who Jesus is, that you'd give them eyes to see him as Lord and King they might know the hope and the joy that he brings to life and God we pray again for the Salvo family that their comfort would be real and strong because Jesus Christ rose from the dead in Jesus name we pray amen if you just just sit and crew this football team you guys are dismissed to head to our Creekside building to enjoy lunch again thank you for coming being our guest today. Y'all go ahead out. Thanks, coach. Keep keep praying for our brother. Danny shared with us earlier. Um, he is resting and he is not in pain and his family is with him and they are enjoying wonderful last moments in a way that you can only enjoy if you're in Christ. So we're going to continue praying for them and we're going to continue loving them as we pray for them in the coming days. And as a, as a football team heads out, um, as soon as these guys are out, you are dismissed as well. Be steadfast, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord. And as we are, just ask that the Lord would bless us and keep us and that He would make His face shine upon us. And in, on these sad days, that He would raise our countenance because Jesus rose from the dead. And that He would give us peace.